All Saints is a reminder to us that we have been adopted into a family of God, that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, both of people that have gone before us and those that are with us here on our left and our right. And so we press into that truth. We lean in together with each other and with them, knowing that people have gone before us and have been faithful in challenges, and that we will continue on with the faith once received. So we lean in on that, that we are not the first to experience challenges. We are not the last who will experience that. So we persevere and we walk forward in the faith. That's part of what we look at when we think about All Saints Day. It's also a reminder that this life, this life that we're living right here, right now in the flesh, is not all there is. Now, of course, as Christians, we would come to say that that is true, that this life is not all there is, that what we see is not all that is true and real and eternal in the world. We, I think, would all say that, but today is a day where we remind ourselves that that really is true, that this life is not all that there is, that we've all been given a set amount of time here on this earth, in the flesh, that we all have been given a set amount of time before we go to know and be with Jesus fully. As our passage says today in verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. So all saints is a reminder that we're a part of this great cloud of witnesses, and this life that we see around us right here and right now is not all there is. And so this reality, this truth should do at least for us two things. One is it should give us a soberness about our lives. It should wake us up in a sense to lift our gaze from the day to day to see through our lives to something that is eternal, that God is doing eternal things in and through each, and one, each one of us, that he's reaching through eternity into our lives. So All Saints is a day where we face that reality with soberness, and we look up our gaze towards eternity. It's also a day, I hope, as we'll cover here in a few moments, that gives us great joy and a sense of deep expectation that God does have wonderful things beyond all of our imaginations for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, that he has wonderful things in store beyond anything that we can express. So as we look at our passage today, I want to look at it through that light. What is this author, what is the apostle saying to the people of Hebrews, and what is he saying to us here today? So I want to turn your attention. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to focus most of our attention on the last two verses, but we'll jump back up a few verses. And these verses at the very end of the chapter give us an anchor point I believe, for navigating the challenges that we experience in life with a sense of bearing, where we can walk through everything in life, whether it's the easy times or the hard times, with a sense of joy and peace, no matter what's happening around us. So here in verse 28, he says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, the famous philosopher Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Ever heard that quote? 
And of course, he's speaking to a greater truth that we already know in the scriptures, that we see all through the Psalms, that a combination of life circumstances and our own expectations for what those circumstances should produce in our lives will always create in times of our lives an experience and a time of disorientation. Now, hopefully we don't live in a perpetual sense of disorientation, but circumstances mixed with our expectations for what our circumstances should be will always often create in our lives, always often, will often create in our lives a sense of disorientation in different seasons. Now, as we've covered many times up into this point as we've walked through the book of Hebrews, the audience of the book of Hebrews, they knew this. In fact, you could say this whole letter was written to a group of people that were highly disoriented in their spiritual lives. They were wondering which way is up, which way is left, which way should we go forward? How do we navigate the challenges of life going forward? And we've talked a lot about this. We know this as we read through the Psalms. In fact, if you trace the Psalter from Psalm 1 all the way to the end of Psalms, it's a movement from disorientation to orientation around God's goodness. There's a movement there throughout the whole of scriptures because the scriptures meet us where we are. Life often leads us down a path where our circumstances mixed with our expectations will put us into a place of disorientation. And as we've mentioned, this book of Hebrews really is, as many commentators think of it, as a sermon. And so as we're coming towards the end of the sermon here in Hebrews chapter 12, he's sort of coming off the culmination of everything he's been saying. He ends with this exhortation, therefore, he says, therefore, as you're trying to navigate this life of disorientation, as you're experiencing these challenges, I want to give you this encouragement, this therefore. So he's speaking to this church who's disoriented, and he says, therefore, I want you to live lives of gratitude, of awe, and of reverence. Now, these do not answer the mysteries of all of our lives. If we turn around and we leave here today and we embrace more deeply gratefulness and gratitude for God, we live with more reverence and more awe for Him, this will not solve all of our problems tomorrow. It won't make things easy necessarily, and that's not what He's promising here, but it will anchor us, it will give us a sense of direction. It will give us a sense of orientation that God will use in our lives to bear all sorts of eternal fruit for his kingdom. And it will lead us in lives where we rest in the peace and the goodness of God. So I want to explore that together with you, this idea of gratefulness, reverence, and awe, what he says here at the end. And so to give us context for this encouragement here, I want to look back at some of the verses that are leading up to this so they're not just floating in air. He's not talking about, you know, just a sense of mindfulness and gratitude in the general ethereal sense, but he's talking about gratitude, reverence, and awe for things that are very specific. And so if we jump back here to verse 18, we'll see him move through three different comparisons that he makes here at the end Again, think of it as sort of like the end of a, of a really long sermon. We don't preach that long here at this church. Uh, but think of this as a culmination of a really long sermon. And to help give context to this reverence and gratefulness and awe, he gives us three comparisons. So if we go back to verse 18, there's a comparison between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. There's a comparison between the blood of Abel and the blood of Jesus. And then there's a comparison between the shakable kingdom and the unshakable kingdom. And 
Each one of these deserves a whole sermon, but since I promised a shorter sermon at the beginning of this sermon, I'll just run through these very quickly. But here in verse 18, it starts off with this. It starts off with this sort of strange language that seems sort of otherworldly. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. And what the author here is referencing is a passage back in Exodus 19 when the Israelites are there at the base of Mount Sinai and it's the giving of God's law to the whole nation. So God has already started them on a journey and he meets them there and this is a time where he invites Moses and he's going to give Moses the law to give to the nation. And what he's referencing back to, if you go back and read the whole chapters, what he's referencing back to is this sense that When God is near, there's something that is absolutely terrifying about his holiness. There's something that is absolutely sobering about the holiness and the glory of God, that it represents his unparalleled majesty, his incomparable being, his blameless, faultless, unblemished moral purity. So pure, so holy, in fact, that nothing unclean, nothing unholy could come near the presence of God's holiness without being completely consumed. Now, uh, two weeks ago, we touched on this for a moment in our catechism. By the way, we're going to have one in January. Sign up. We'd love to have it. It's been awesome so far, our second catechism. But we touched on this a couple of weeks ago when someone in our catechism said, you know, God sometimes in the Bible says, I am who I am. And it seems sort of dismissive to say, who are you, God? I am who I am. It seems dismissive. But really what that's communicating is that it's an expression, again, of God's holiness, the otherness of God, that he dwells, as the scriptures say, in unapproachable light. That when Jesus was pressed by the Pharisees in John 18, they said, tell us who you are. Tell us who you are. He said, I am who I am. And when he said that, the Pharisees fell down at him telling them who he was. This holiness just sort of overwhelmed them. That when God passed Moses, his face becomes brilliant and other people can't even stand to be around Moses after he sees just a glimpse of God because he's in the presence of God's holiness just for a moment. That when God's holiness dwells in the center of the Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament, it's described as the weighty presence of God, the Shekinah glory of him. This is his holiness. And so when God came down on Mount Sinai, the people trembled. It says, it says that Moses himself trembled at the holiness of God, at the thought of being near this holiness of God, but standing only upon their own merits, their own unholiness. So it caused them to tremble. But here's the good news. Verse 18, again, here in our passage says, for we did not come. This is a a sort of a word for like spiritual arrival. But we did not come, we who, those who know Jesus, we did not come to Mount Sinai. We are not among those who have to tremble and fear to touch a mountain. We are not those among those who have to be scared. But we've actually come to about as an opposite of a picture as you can imagine. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in a festal gathering. 
Again, distant language, but that idea of festal gathering is like an absolutely raucous party. Only it's not a raucous party that's animated by drugs or sin or by anything else, but it's this absolute place that's filled with amazing, unfettered joy. Because the goodness of God is just as intense as the holiness of God. So all the things I used to describe the holiness of God sounded a little intense. His goodness is just as intense. And when people come into the goodness of God and his presence, even the angels can't help but throw themselves into this raucous celebration. (laughs) This great joyful party, this festal gathering, this great feast that we've been brought to. So that's really good news that we haven't come to Mount Sinai to come into God's holiness based on our own merits. But we've come to this great, amazing party (laughs) that we can walk into God's presence. He's still just as holy, but we can walk into his presence and we can walk into his presence not with fear and trembling that will be consumed, but with great joy. So he's saying as you are disoriented in your life, as you are experiencing challenges, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You haven't come to a place where you have to be scared of God, but you've come to a place where you can walk into his goodness and experience great and deep personal joy, along with his communion of saints. Now, what allows us to embrace this joy is the second comparison. Verse 24, what allows us to come into the presence of a holy God, but yet experience joy and not this trembling fear. Verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the blood of Jesus, which we talked about a few weeks ago, but the blood of Jesus brings life and forgiveness and mercy and peace. And it's the blood of Jesus that invites us to just run into the festal gathering together with the angels and enter into this raucous party in God's presence. Not in fear, not in trembling. And it says here this interesting phrase. It says, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, if we jump back into Genesis 4.10, you don't have to go there, but God talks about the blood of Abel crying out from the ground for vengeance and for justice. The blood of Abel, this call for vengeance, is really the call of the world. And it's really the world's best attempt at justice and peace. And yet it never brings peace and it never brings Justice, this blood crying up from the ground for justice and for vengeance. Of course, we, we don't have to look any farther than Israel and Palestine today, going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in cycles of the blood of Abel calling out for vengeance and then the blood of Abel calling back out for vengeance. Or if you ask any Greek about what they think about the Turks, or if you go to the Balkans today, or if you consider race relations or All sorts of challenges that go back for centuries. This deep long-term injustice doesn't just go away. And it's seated in the middle of so many conflicts that we see all around us in the world today. Twitter or the news. It's the blood of Abel crying out. I want my justice. I want my vengeance. This back and forth. This punishment of whoever has power punishes those who don't have power. And then when they have power, they punish those who punish them. And this, this cycle It's the blood of Abel crying out from the ground for vengeance. It's man's best attempt at grabbing justice. (laughs) But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's a blood that brings ultimate, true, and eternal justice. 
And it's the only blood that can ever bring peace to the world and to our own hearts. So this is the blood of Jesus that cries out. So what the author is saying that we don't live under the blood of Abel. We live under the blood of Jesus, the mercy and the grace of God that forgives us and invites us into this festal gathering. And it's not just an end to the pain and the suffering, but it's an invitation into the fullness of life that God has for us. This is the blood of Jesus, and it's better than the blood of Abel. We have the invitation to Mount Zion in the festal gathering and not Mount Sinai where we have to tremble in fear. Those are two comparisons. Last comparison. It's part of the verses that we didn't read, but it starts in verse 26. It's a comparison between the shakable and the unshakable. At the time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, that the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, again, this points us to the deeper reality that most of what consumes our thoughts, most of what weighs heavily on our hearts, if we consider it, most of it, not all of it, but most of what consumes most of our thinking is present, it's temporary, and it's transient. And what, this, what these verses are calling us to is to see through the presence with a lens of the eternal. Now, this is not a call to detach and to be aloof from our daily lives. Because God moves eternally in all things in our life. That He moves through the conversations that we have with others. He's present in the love that we have for friends and for family. God sees the way that we help the poor and that we love others and that we respond to his goodness in our lives. These are all us pressing into our eternal life. Eternity is the future, but it's also reaching into the present through the work of God in our lives. And what this verse is calling us to is to see through the things that are shakable, the things that are temporary, the things that are transient, so often the things that weigh on most of our minds, and to grab a hold of things that are unshakable, things that are eternal, God's ultimate kingdom, to invest our lives in what will not be shaken, and to push off everything that will be shaken. So just a quick review to hear what this final appeal is, is that we haven't come to Mount Sinai to stand before the unfettered holiness of God based on our own merits, but because of this blood of Jesus that is better than the blood of Abel, we can with great joy run into the presence of God and join the festal gathering. We can embrace the things that are eternal and unshakable and push off the things that are shakable in our lives. This is the encouragement that he says at the end of the sermon. He probably said it better than I did. That we can press into this great cloud of witnesses forever. And we can base our lives on this. Especially on days like today, like All Saints Day, when we remind, when we remind ourselves that so much of the world around us will be shaken. That our bodies will be shaken. That God will remake all things in an unshakable way. That God has called us to an unshakable kingdom. And while having gratefulness for all of what God has given us and having awe and reverence for everything that God does in our lives might not solve, again, all of our complexities and all of our problems and might not give you answers to what you should do tomorrow necessarily, it does give us an anchor for how we can live our lives. The whole book of the book of Hebrews leads up to right here. Let us then be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken 
And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. A few moments, we're going to do the Apostles' Creed, and then we're going to come back to uh, prayers of the people, but do it in a different way.